My grandmother passed away a few weeks ago at the age of 96, and as I prepared to preach her funeral, I, I've never been more convinced that we are on the right track in our approach to the book of Revelation. I'm a preacher, and so when events transpire in my life, I tend to put a theological spin on them, and as I was driving up the last Saturday of her life, and I was praying that God would give me the grace to be able to make it before she passed away, I began composing her funeral sermon while she was still alive, but uh, that's okay, nobody would have enjoyed her funeral sermon more than her, and I knew that the text that I, that I needed to preach was Revelation 7. Because as I thought of my grandmother and I, I meditated over the long years of her life, the words of, of that text just flooded my mind. Revelation 7, where the saints are gathered before the throne of God and they are clothed in white robes and they have palm branches in their hands and they are crying out in exultation and in worship saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. And as I prepared that funeral message, I I thought about the relationship because I was already working on Revelation 6. I thought about the relationship between Revelation 6 and Revelation 7, a connection that I'll point out in next week's sermon. And suddenly... I saw my, grandfather, my grandmother's life depicted in the pages of Scripture. And it was a thing marvelous to behold. She was born on June 6, 1919. Just seven months at, after the end of World War I. A conflict which was falsely called, maybe hopefully called, the war to end all wars. A conflict which resulted in the deaths of some 16 million people, both military and civilian, not to mention the over 20 million that were wounded in the battle. And these figures, 16 million dead, 20 wounded, do not even include the 50 million people who died of Spanish flu between the years 1918 and 1920. She grew up in the midst of the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl era when jobs and food were scarce. She raised two daughters on her own for two and a half years while my grandfather was deployed overseas in World War II, a conflict which claimed the lives of another 50 to 80 million people. In fact, there was scarcely a day in my grandmother's long life when she couldn't have turned on her radio or her television or her computer to hear of wars and rumors of wars. From Korea to Vietnam to Iran and Iraq in the 80s and 90s. Or to hear of genocides from the Holocaust to the killing fields of Cambodia to Rwanda. Or of plagues from the Spanish flu to Ebola. Or of famines from China to the Sudan. My grandmother lived Revelation 6. 
and so has every believer for the past 2,000 years. Revelation 6 describes the tribulation. It describes what Revelation 7.14 will call the great tribulation. The tribulation of the last days between the first and second comings of Christ. An age, follow with me, an age that is marked by conquest, first seal. War, second seal. Famine, third seal. Death, fourth seal. The persecution and perseverance of the saints, fifth seal. Before the end comes and judgment falls upon the whole earth, sixth seal. But the Lord told us that it would be like this, did he not? On the week of his crucifixion, Jesus gathered his disciples together and he issued them this warning saying, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. He's talking to his disciples in 30 AD, not people living some distant 2,000 years ago in, in a Hypothetical seven-year tribulation at the end of the age. He's talking to his followers. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. These things must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. But these are but the beginning. Of birth pains. Wars. Multinational geopolitical upheaval. Earthquakes. Famines. Sounds like Revelation 6, doesn't it? Sounds like the 96 years of my grandmother's life. Jesus then proceeded to warn his disciples that they would be persecuted and put to death for the sake of his name. Mark 13, 13, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but it is the one who endures to the end who will be saved. In Luke's gospel of the same account, the same discourse on the Mount of Olives, Jesus is even more explicit about the time frame, saying that when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified for these things must take place first, but the end will not be all at once. Jesus then proceeds in Luke 21 to speak of nation rising against nation and kingdom against kingdom and great earthquakes and famines and plagues, pestilence and plagues, death, terrors and great signs in the heavens, the persecution and the perseverance of the saints. In other words, these things characterize the tribulation of this age, and they are not relegated to a future seven-year period called the tribulation. This is the age of tribulation. And all of these horrors are but the beginning of birth pains. That is sporadic and irregular at first but increasing in frequency and intensity as we near the time of the end. And I think that one of the greatest obstacles to you receiving Revelation 6 as a description of this age between the two comings of Christ and not as a description of something that's going to come at the end of the age is that 
We don't experience wars and rumors of wars and nation rising against nation and pestilence and plague and famine and persecution and death. So it sounds foreign to us with our big houses and our double income families and our two car garages and our peace and security. And so I would simply remind you that the Bible wasn't simply written for 21st century Americans. It's written for Christians who don't have anything to eat in the Sudan. It's written for Christians who are being beheaded in Syria. It's written written for Christians who are being tortured and slaughtered night and day in North Korea. Expand your vision and you will see Revelation 6 is now. And as I thought of over the years of my grandmother's life, the 96 and a half years of human history, it's not difficult to see that these birth pangs are increasing and they're becoming more violent and that the water is about to break and the time of gestation is coming to an end and that the new creation is about to come forth in violent birth, culminating in the everlasting glory of the new heaven and the new earth. Paul said in Romans chapter 8, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. It's groaning through contractions. Awaiting that day when it will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Groaning now in this age. Glory to come. The groaning is Revelation 6. The glory is Revelation 7. So what I'd like to do over the next two weeks is to walk through these seven seals which describe this age in which we live between the two comings of Christ as we await His return. But before we do that, before we jump into the text, I want to take a moment I want to establish the time frame of this vision and its place within the visions of Revelation. Revelation 6 is a continuation of the vision begun in Revelation 4 and continued in Revelation 5. The vision in which John, summoned up into heaven, sees in the right hand of him who sits on the throne a scroll. Sealed with seven seals, written within and on the back, resting in the palm of his right hand. And no one in heaven, on earth, or under the earth is worthy to take the scroll and to break its seals and to unfold God's sovereign will for the destiny of the world. And so John weeps in utter despair until one of the 24 elders tells him, Weep no more, for the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll in its seven seals. But when John turns to see the lion of the tribe of Judah, instead he sees a lamb looking as if it had been slain. And this lamb, who is Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, has conquered. He is conquered by dying and by rising again, by being slain and yet standing before the throne of God. He has conquered 
by shedding his blood in order to purchase a people for God from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation and making them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. And the lamb walks right up to the throne and he takes the scroll from the right hand of him who sits on the throne and as all of heaven cries out in worship, he begins to break the seals and to unfold the scroll. And what we find in Revelation chapter 6 are the contents of that scroll. So the vision of Revelation 6 begins when the crucified and risen Lord Jesus, the slain yet standing Lamb, when He ascended into heaven and received from Him who sits on the throne all authority in heaven and on earth, having accomplished the work which the Father sent Him to perform. And Revelation 6 ends with the day of wrath when Christ returns in judgment upon the world. So Revelation 6 begins with Christ's ascension to the throne of God. And it ends with his descension from the throne of God. And I'll show you next week how that sixth seal can be understood in no other way than as a reference to the second coming of Christ on the great and terrible day of the Lord. Which means that Revelation 6 spans the entirety of this age from Christ's ascension to his descension, from his first coming to his second coming. Now again, this points us to the truth because at the end of Revelation 6, we've got a whole lot more chapters of Revelation to come, right? It points us to the truth that Revelation is not a linear, chronological journey through history, but rather like birth pangs, like contractions, are recurring cycles, detailing the same events from different angles. Reading Revelation is like holding up a diamond and examining one facet of the diamond and then turning it ever so slightly and viewing another facet of the same diamond. For example... The judgment which Jesus brings at his return is shown no less than seven times in the book of Revelation. So if you try to read Revelation in a linear fashion, like a chronological journey, sequential journey through history, Jesus is going to come back seven times. And that's problematic because from Jesus' own mouth, it says, I'm coming back once to judge the living and the dead. Just follow with me through Revelation. I'll point out your seven returns. First one is found in Revelation 6, 12 to 17, the climax of the seven signs. Chapter 11, verses 15 to 19, the climax of the seven trumpets. 14, 14 to 20, the harvest of the Son of Man when he comes with a sickle in his hand to gather up the wheat. Chapter 16, 17 to 21, the climax of the seven bowls of wrath. Chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, the fall of Babylon and the marriage supper of the Lamb. Chapter 19, 11 to 21, the white horse judgment and the last battle. And chapter 20, 11 to 15, the white throne judgment. All of them are descriptive of the judgment which Christ will bring at his return. So the visions of Revelation are not linear or sequential or chronological, but neither are the seven seals themselves. In other words, while from John's perspective in heaven at this point, 
From the perspective of heaven, it appears that the sealed judgments occur in succession, one after another. I think there's good reason to believe that from our perspective, the perspective of history, the first five seals before the return of Christ in the sixth seal are to be understood as simultaneous and as characteristic of this age. Let me give you a couple of reasons why I think this. Number one, the first four seals, the so-called four horsemen of the apocalypse, They don't just appear here in Revelation 6. Like much of Revelation, they've been seen before back in the Old Testament prophets. The four horsemen of the apocalypse appear to be patterned after the four chariots of Zechariah 6. Which, after they come and present themselves before the Lord of all the earth, they are sent out at the same time to the four winds of heaven to execute God's judgment upon the earth. The second reason is, in Jesus' Olivet Discourse, recorded in Matthew 24 and Mark 13 and Luke 21, as we've already seen, passage I've already read you, Jesus speaks of the contents of these seals, right? Wars and rumors of wars, nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom, famine, pestilence, plague, death, persecution, perseverance. It's the same thing. Jesus speaks of them as birth pangs. Regular, successive contractions, cyclical in nature, all progressing towards the cataclysmic birth of the new creation. So I believe that we're to understand the four horsemen, seals one through four, as being sent out at the beginning of the age when Christ ascended, received from the Father all authority in heaven and on earth, sent out at the beginning of the age to roam the earth and to wreak havoc throughout this age until the end. And related to the destruction that the four horsemen bring, the saints will suffer persecution and death, fifth seal. And so it will go until the full number of the elect have been killed, 611. And then the end will come as Jesus returns in judgment, seal six. And when Jesus returns in judgment, all of heaven takes a collective gasp in awestruck silence, seal seven. We're only going to deal with the first four today, and we'll pick up the last three next week. So follow along with me, beginning in verses one and two. The first seal, which is the rider on the white horse symbolizing conquest. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. These horses and their horsemen stand as metaphors for angelic or demonic powers, however you read it, I could go either way, which God wields as instruments to execute his righteous judgment upon the earth. They are summoned forth from whence we we know not, but they are summoned forth to the throne of God, they are commissioned and empowered as agents of God, and then they are sent out to perform the will of God upon the earth. The first rider appears on a white horse, which maybe symbolizes victory, 
And he's given a bow, which definitely symbolizes military power. And a crown, symbolizing authority. And he is sent out, quote, conquering and to conquer. Conquest upon conquest. During this age, then, this first horseman stirs up nation against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Churning within the hearts of kings and rulers and tyrants a desire for conquest and for expansion, for riches and glory. And history has seen his handiwork from the time when Jesus sent him out. It was he who stirred up Attila the Hun against the Roman Empire in the 5th century. It was he who stirred up Genghis Khan against the Asian nations in the 11th and 12th centuries. He stirred up Cortes against the Aztecs and Pizarro against the Incas in the 16th century. He stirred up Napoleon against all of Europe in the 18th century and Hitler against the same, or the 19th century and Hitler against the same in the 20th century. And that just scratches the surface of what the White Rider has done and continues to do. Who, who do you think stirs within the hearts of the leaders of ISIS, prompting them to erect a kingdom that expands across national borders? Who stirs in the hearts of Vladimir Putin of Russia as he encroaches into sovereign territory in the Crimean Peninsula? Who stirs within the hearts of Kim Jong-un of North Korea who's fashioning a nuclear weapon as we speak? The white horseman does not create the sin of such men, for God is not the author of evil. Rather, what he does is stirs up the sin and the greed that is already resident within the hearts of men such that they go forth to explore the depths of their depravity and the world tastes of its own wretchedness as it is forced to eat the bitter fruit of its rebellion against its king and creator. Second seal, the rider on the red horse, symbolizing war. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people would slay one another. And he was given a great sword. So the second rider appears on a bright red horse, which symbolizes slaughter and bloodshed. And he is given by God a great sword, and he is sent forth to take peace from the earth so that, with the intention of, for the purpose of, causing men to slay one another. If the first horseman corresponds to Jesus' warning of nation rising against nation and kingdom against kingdom, then the second horseman corresponds to the wars and rumors of wars. And I think that there's a logical flow and connection to these four horsemen. In other words, they work together to execute God's judgment upon the earth. The first, the white horse, stirs up kings and rulers and tyrants with dreams of conquest so that the kings and the rulers and the tyrants lead their armies into war and bloodshed. And the aftermath of war is often famine and economic collapse. Third horseman. 
And as a result of these dreams of conquest and these wars and this famine and economic collapse, there is pestilence, sword, famine, and death, fourth horsemen. But regardless of how we understand these four horsemen or the connection between the four horsemen and the way that they relate one to the other, the end result of the destruction that they bring upon humanity is judgment by the sovereign decree of a holy and righteous God. Third seal, the rider on the black horse, which symbolizes famine. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, but do not harm the oil and the wine. So the third rider appears on a black horse, which symbolizes famine and blight. And in his hand are a pair of scales, the balance scales that you would find in any ancient marketplace. And John hears the voice, or another voice rather, coming from the midst of the four living creatures. So this is not the voice of the living creature who summoned forth this horse. This is another voice from within the four living creatures. Who's that? It's the lamb. The Lord Jesus Christ is setting the terms and the limits of this just judgment upon the earth. The price of wheat and barley will be severely inflated by divine decree. In John's day, a denarius was roughly a day's wage for a laborer. So imagine spending an entire day's wage on a quart of wheat, which would not be nearly enough to feed your family. Scholars claim that this represents a price increase of somewhere between 800 and 1,200 percent. What was the cause of this famine? Was it the conquest and war of the first two horsemen, assuming their connection? Famine is often the result of war, whether it be from siege and naval blockade, or whether it be from invading or retreating armies, slaughtering livestock and burning fields. Or maybe the famine in question is the result of natural disaster, severe droughts and floods. In the end, it matters not what the secondary cause is, for God is sovereign over all, is He not? He commands the horsemen who stir up conquest and war, just as He commands the sun and the rain. Famine is God's judgment upon a godless world that has turned its back on its creator and provider who provides seed to the sower and bread to the eater. And yet, the judgment inflicted in this age is limited, isn't it? Always mingled with mercy and with patience. The famine is not total. The oil and the wine, necessities in the ancient world would were to remain untouched. So judgment is not the only motive in sending famine upon the earth. It is also God's mercy in in awakening a world that is slumbering in sin to its hopelessness and helplessness apart from Christ. What if... 
What if God sends a drought upon the earth resulting in widespread cataclysmic famine simply to make people realize that they are not God and they cannot make it rain? Fourth seal. The riders on the pale horse who are deaf and Hades. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. The fourth rider appears on a pale or ashen horse, which symbolizes terror and the power of death. He's pale, just like a corpse is. That's the point. The fourth rider is symbolically named Death, and his partner Hades, or the grave, rides with him. Death and Hades, we've already seen in chapter 1 and verse 18, are under the sovereign control of Christ, for he holds their keys in his right hand. And we know because we've read the end of the book in Revelation 20 and verses 13 to 14 that Jesus will one day judge them both and cast them both into the lake of fire. Death and Hades were given authority over a fourth of the earth. Again, I just want you to note there's a limitation and a restraint to the judgment of this age. And they are given authority to kill the inhabitants of the earth with the sword, with famine, with pestilence, that is plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. That last phrase, sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts, comes from Ezekiel 14, 21, an echo of God's judgment upon Jerusalem. So this age is to be characterized by wars, famines, plagues, and conflict between man and creation. Death is an ever-present threat for all of us who live east of Eden. And it is God's judgment upon the sin of man. Therefore, through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin. And therefore, all die, because all sin. Romans 5.12 Nation rises against nation because God moves them around like pieces on a chessboard. Famine strikes the earth because God sends locusts or withholds rain. The bubonic plague, black death, which claimed the lives of 75 million people in the 14th century in Europe, claiming nearly a third of the entire continent. God did that. Spanish flu, another 50 million people at the beginning of the 20th century. God did that too. Snakes bite and lions maul because God has put enmity between man and beast. God summoned forth death and Hades and gave a quarter of the earth to their insatiable appetite. God did that. 2,000 years and counting of human history are conveyed in Revelation chapter 6. In this symbolic picture of the four horsemen galloping throughout the earth, leaving so much death and destruction and despair in their wake. 
And the question that I want to end with this morning is what are we to do with this passage? How do we respond to this passage? Should we wrap up here and pray and bring Mike and the praise team back up here and sing sing glorious songs of death and judgment and hell? Is that how we're to respond? Plague and famine? What do we do on a Sunday morning, February 14th, 2016, with Revelation 6, 1 through 8? Well, I suggest that we ask some questions of this text. Three in particular. The first question is, what is the source of all this suffering? Where does it come from and why? This text has some astonishing theological implications, particularly for those of you who have not yet tasted of the absolute sovereignty of God over all things. The absolute sovereignty of a God who has the freedom to dispense justice and mercy to whomever He will. Who is it that summons forth the horsemen, equips them for destruction, and then sends them out to kill and destroy? Who does that? God. Is it not the voice of the four living creatures who thunder forth the will of God? Who sets the inflated price of wheat and barley such that multitudes will starve to death for lack of bread? Who does that? The Lamb. It is the Lamb who breaks each seal and unfolds the scroll and executes each judgment written by the hand of God from before the foundations of the world. Conquest, war, famine, plague, and death come from the throne of God. And listen to me. And he's not the least embarrassed by that fact. It's the church that tends to be embarrassed by Revelation 6. So I am standing here today and I am warning you not to put the God of Revelation 6 in the defendant's box and accuse him of injustice. Rather, Revelation 6 exists so that our view of God would be expanded and we would know what he means when he says our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. The church so often squirms with embarrassment beneath questions of where was God in the 2010 Haiti earthquake that claimed the lives of 160,000 people and rendered another million and a half homeless? Where was God in that? See it on CNN. And church is like, God didn't have anything to do with that. God. Where was God in the 2004 tsunami which killed 230,000 people around the Indian Ocean? Natural seismic plates causing tidal, these things just happen. They just happen, and God's just really sad about the fact that they happen. Wishes he could do something about it. 
Where was God in the Holocaust, which claimed the lives of six million Jews and countless millions others of the Soviets and the Slavs and the Poles and other ethnic groups? God is not squirming in embarrassment in the face of such questions. In fact, he declares openly and plainly in the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 45 verse 5, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, pagan king of Persia, Cyrus, I equip you, though you do not know me, in order that people may know me from the rising of the sun and from the west, that there is none besides me. Listen, I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So where is God in the midst of calamity? Conquest, war, famine, plague, earthquakes, tsunamis, holocausts, death. Where is God? Revelation 6 shows him seated upon his throne calling it all into being. Does your understanding of God allow for Revelation 6? If not, you need to enlarge your view. Now, you may think that the second question would be, why would God send such destruction upon the earth? Why would God do such a thing? It doesn't seem to us to be good or loving of God to do this. But I submit to you that that's not the question that we should be asking in light of Revelation 6. The answer to the question of why God sends the horsemen to wreak havoc upon the earth is, I believe, obvious from Scripture. Revelation 6 is a vision of divine judgment upon the wickedness and sin of men. If your view of sin does not allow for Revelation 6, but rather Revelation 6 causes you to writhe with uncomfortable, embarrassing questions of the goodness and love of God, then I submit to you that you have not yet come to grips with the sinfulness of sin. You've not yet understood your sin before such a God. The real question is not why would God send destruction, but why would God limit and restrain his judgment at all? To put it another way, the real question is why does Jesus the real question is not why does Jesus send a famine upon some, but why does he not send famine upon everybody? When creation when mankind throws seed in the ground and then prays to gods of wood and stone, why doesn't Jesus just withhold bread from them all? For their ingratitude and irreverence. The question is not why would God give a quarter of the earth over to death and Hades, but why, why not the whole earth? The question is not, why do some die by sword and famine and plague and wild beasts, but why do some live 96 years in relative peace and tranquility? In short, why is God's judgment limited 
and restrained in this age? That's the question you need to ask if you're going to understand who God is and what He's doing in Revelation 6. And I submit to you this answer. Is His judgment not limited and restrained in order that men might see the misery of their sin and the hopelessness of life apart from God and seek to be reconciled to Him? Why does God give cancer? But that men might know that cancer or that sin is the cancer of the soul and that the wages of sin is death. And why is cancer so slow and painful a death? But that men might have opportunity to reflect on their mortality and repent and be saved. See, there is mercy in Revelation chapter 6, even in a passage that is filled to the brim with divine judgment. There is mercy and patience as God at one and the same time gives men to taste of His righteous judgment and yet calls them to seek His mercy in Christ. Revelation 6 teaches us that the proper response to suffering, whether on an individual scale in your life, or on a worldwide scale in these cataclysmic events. The proper response to suffering is not to shake your fists at heaven in defiance, but to hold out your hands to heaven in desperation. That you live and breathe this morning is the mercy of God and is an opportunity for you to seek Him in repentance. But even if, We have one more question we need to answer. Even if you grant that the calamities of Revelation 6 come from the throne of God, that they are the judgment of God upon the sin of man, and that the judgment of God in this age is limited by the mercy of God in order that men might repent and be reconciled to Him, one burning question remains for us this morning. If I am right, and and these judgments characterize the entirety of this age, the last days between the ascension and descension of Christ, then that means that you and I and the rest of the saints during this age endure these judgments right alongside the rest of the world. And I want to know why. Why do the children suffer with the wicked and unbelieving? Why would the children of God be trampled by the horsemen right alongside the wicked and the godless and the rebellious? If Christ has taken away our judgment at the cross, if by His blood He has redeemed us and purchased us for God and made us to be a kingdom of priests, why do we suffer these judgments right alongside those who are not redeemed? It was not only unbelievers who died in Hitler's concentration camps. The saints died in mass. Read the hiding place. It was not only the wicked who perished in 14th century Europe of black death. The bubonic plague. The saints died 
in mass a most horrible and painful death. It is not merely the godless who die in famines and earthquakes and tsunamis. God does not provide manna from heaven in the households of the Christians in the Sudan when everyone else in their community doesn't have anything. Churches wiped out in Hurricane Katrina right alongside brothels. Why? What is God doing? Why do believers get cancer when we already know that our sin is the cancer of the soul and we've already repented and we've been reconciled to God in Christ? Why are we sharers in the world's sufferings? Why do you go through such tragedies and hurts? Why do you lose your job and go into foreclosure? Why do marriages end? Why do you still struggle with sin and death? The answer comes in verse 9. When he opened the fifth Seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Now I realize that this verse speaks particularly of the martyrs. But I'm going to argue next week that the application of this fifth seal is more expansive, including more than just those who die as an explicit testimony of their faith. I think it also has reference to every believer who endures the tribulation of this age, boldly testifying to the word of God and witnessing to his mercy and to his judgment. And that's why I believe verse 9 holds the key as to why, in the wisdom of God, the righteous suffer in this age right alongside the wicked. We, beloved, are sharers in the world's sufferings that we may be heralds to the world of the hope that is in Christ. We are witnesses of God's judgment and of His mercy. So, for instance, when the world asks... Where was God when the Holocaust happened? Here's what we can say. God was on his throne. He was giving the world a foretaste of his judgment. Because the world does not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God has given it over to a depraved mind. And this, Auschwitz, this is what depravity does. This is what sin is. This is what it does. This is what it, where it leads. This is what it is like to depart from Eden and to hide yourself from the God of all creation. It is an enormous object lesson of the devastation of sin. But there is hope. For Christ died to rescue sinners out of sin and depravity and death. Christ died for guards and concentration camps. Christ died for you who've just had your entire home swept away in a tsunami. God in this age, in this age, he is giving us object lessons of his mercy or his judgment against sin. 
But he is also extending the call of mercy to all who would call upon his name, promising grace and abundant salvation and rescue from the final judgment that is to come, a judgment which will not be limited and restrained. So look at the Holocaust. See what sin is and what it does and where it leads. And repent and be reconciled to God in Christ. How will the world know how to connect those dots if we are not around to do it for them? That's why the redeemed are left in the world. That's why we suffer along with the rest. So that we might testify to the judgment of God for sin and to the mercy of God in Christ. It's so that we might display to the world as living, breathing object lessons of Philippians 1.21 that to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's why I'm not despairing over this cancer or this Parkinson's or this disease or this tragic loss. I am not despairing and my faith is not crushed, but Jesus Christ is a treasure worth selling all to attain. And he is more to be honored and worth worshipped and adored than anything else that could ever be taken away. How will the world ever see that unless you're that portrait? That's why you suffer. You are sharers in the world's sufferings that you may be a herald to the world of the hope that is in Christ. And so it goes throughout this age. The saints suffer and they die as they testify to the judgment and mercy of Christ in order that the gospel may be proclaimed to every nation and then the end will come. Our sufferings and world evangelization go hand in hand. Puts a new spin on your cancer, doesn't it? It's those who persevere to the end who will be saved. 